bloodshed at St. Louis, the crooked alderman, the fight at Laredo, murdered his child to save it from maltreatment and the insane asylum. Plus more crime news for the 10th of April, 1886, on this edition of A Year of Crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee. The crime news for the 10th of April, 1886, comes from the Memphis Appeal. The War Department will, of course, endorse the prompt action of Colonel McIntosh, who intervened his regulars to prevent further riot and bloodshed at Laredo, Texas, on Thursday. Five killed and ten wounded in one day ought to be enough to satisfy even Mexican cutthroats and cowboys. The conduct of the Executive Committee of the Knights of Labor in East St. Louis yesterday was quite in keeping with the good sense manifested by Mr. Powardly and his co-laborers the National Council. To them, it is wholly due that there was no more bloodshed and that tonight the rioters are dispersed and at their homes and that peace prevails. It should be constantly kept in view that the Knights of Labor are for peace and the safety of property. The murder of six men and one woman in East St. Louis yesterday is a most deplorable episode of the strikes that have prevailed there and thereabouts for several weeks. The result of want of patience and the steadiness and nerve that comes of discipline and is found only in well-drilled and regular soldiers. There is nothing to palpiate it in the deputy sheriffs who, obeying an impulse of mingled apprehension and resentment, fired upon the taunting and jeering mob, will find it difficult to satisfy the law that they are not responsible for the lives lost by their very rash act. Bloodshed at St. Louis. Scenes of the wildest excitement and confusion. Four men and one woman killed by deputy sheriffs doing guard duty. One of the officers beaten to death. Details of one of the most unfortunate incidents of the strike. St. Louis, Missouri, April the 9th. Ever since the railroad employees in East St. Louis created ceased work in support of the striking nights of labor on the Gould Southwestern system, rumors of riots and bloodshed have daily gained circulation, but until today, no serious conflict has occurred between them and the deputy sheriffs and United States marshals stationed in the yards to protect the company's employees and property. The county sheriff has sworn in numerous deputies and upon several occasions has brought in brought to that city bodies of armed men to suppress an anticipated attack upon the railroad yards and their protectors. Upon one occasion only, however, has the presence of these men been really needed, and the railroads have, with some few exceptions, but generally with slight interference, done their usual business. Today opened with but little prospect of serious trouble, although some of the strikers intimated that the roads would find it less easy to run their trains than they had anticipated, and early in the morning the yards presented an animated scene. Switch engines, engines were running backward and forward, making up trains. The platform men were busy loading and unloading freight, and trains were arriving and departing without any interference from the strikers. This condition of affairs continued until noon, and it was thought that the day would pass without any demonstration by the strikers and that it would be recorded as one of the quietest since the strike has, was begun. At that hour, however, the trouble which afterwards grew to such alarming pro proportions began. A number of strikers, without apparently having formed any preconcerted plan, congregated at the re relay depot and began a discussion of the general situation. As time passed, their number was augmented until the original knot of men increased to fully 200. The discussion became more animated and the crowd more demonstrative until someone proposed that they go to the Louisville and Nashville yards and drive out the men employed there. The cry of, 
quote, on to the Nashville yards, unquote, was caught by the crowd, and they advanced. As they proceeded, their numbers again increased, some joining the mob simply as spectators, while others were, were in full sympathy with the movement until from 330 to 400 were advancing upon the yards. Arriving there, they swarmed into the yards and persuaded the men at work to desert their post, the crowd remaining in the yards for some time, and although considerable excitement prevailed, no violence was resorted to. Just at this time, however, a Louisville and Nashville freight train was slowly passing, guarded by eight deputy sheriffs armed with Winchester rifles. In the meantime, crowds of men, women, and children had congregated on Broadway, where the Louisville and, Saint and Nashville tracks crossed the street, and upon the Broadway Bridge, which spans the Chagoco Creek, in the open space to the east of the bridge. Just as the train reached the Broadway crossing, the trouble began. The crowd on the bridge began to yell and jeer at the officers, and it is asserted stones were thrown, which struck two or three of them, and it is also said that a pistol was discharged. The deputies immediately leveled their rifles and fired two volleys into the crowd on the bridge with fatal effect. Four men were killed and one woman mortally wounded. The dead are Patrick Driscoll, a, a Wabash section hand, not a striker. Oscar Washington, a painter, not a striker. John Bonner, coal miner, not a striker. And Major Reichman, a mill employee, not a striker. Mrs. Pfeiffer, said to be the wife of a striker, was shot in the back and mortally wounded. The greatest excitement immediately prevailed and pandemonium reigned. The crowd fled in every direction, and when the deputies realized how fearful was the result of their fire, sought means of escape by rushing for the bridge with the view of fleeing to the city. At the approach, and just as the bridge tower on the east side, they were met by Mayor Joyce, City Clerk Canty, and a third man who seized the deputies' guns and endeavored to turn them back. One of the deputies, in his terror, fired upon the trio, killing a man named C.E. Thompson, who stood between Joyce and Canty. Some shots were fired by the remaining deputies at their approaching strikers, and all started over the bridge. The scene on the bridge was one of wildest confusion and excitement. Coal teams loaded, and other teams with wagons were galloping westward and shouting to all pedestrians and teamsters to turn back. Women and men on foot were running toward the city and waving back all they met, while immediately behind came the deputies, pursued by the vanguard of the crowd from East St. Louis. One of the frightened guards threw his gun into the river, while another hid his weapon in a wagon that was in full retreat. On arriving in this city, the deputies went at once to the Chestnut Street Police Station, where, after starting the, stating the facts of the shooting, they surrendered to the sergeant and were taken to the four courts where they were placed in custody, after giving the following names, P.G. Hewitt, John Hogue, Sam Jones, John F. Williams, G. Luster, Stuart, Stuart Martin, John Marnell, and W. F. Laird deputies killed. Some of the deputies who failed to escape with those who fled to the city were chased by the crowd into the freight warehouse and offices of the Louisville and Nashville. The warehouse was surrounded by an immense crowd who hooted and yelled and urged the men to attack the stronghold and drive the deputies out. Men went among the crowds urging others to procure arms and shoot all the deputies they could find. Some of the deputies watching their opportunity slipped out and worked their way among the freight cars unobserved. A Louisville and Nashville freight car backed down alongside the platform and took away the others to a place of safety. Two were sighted by the strikers who had procured arms and were chased under the bridge. One of them was caught in front of Tony's house on the levee and was beaten to death by the mob. 
Another was reported to have been shot as he was escaping under the approach of the bridge. The other deputies escaped unharmed. The excited mob, about half an hour after the shooting, an excited, angry mob gathered in the square between the city hall and the police station. A man named Dyer, a gambler, and in no way connected with the strike, became the center of a crowd who loudly cheered incendiary statements which he uttered. He urged the men to, quote, hang and kill, and was in the midst of an appeal to the mob to follow him to the Ohio and Mississippi Depot to, quote, hunt for deputy sheriffs. When John W. Hayes, a member of the General Executive Committee of the Knight of Labor, Martin O'Neill, and Knights of Labor Brown arrived upon the scene from this side. Mr. Brown, who travels with the General Board in the capacity of Knights of Labor orator and lecturer, mounted the stairs leading to the police station and yelled to the mob for attention, but the infuriated men answered him with, quote, hang the cures, quote, kill them. Mr. Hayes, who was standing on Brown's side, turned to a prominent knight and asked him to introduce Mr. Brown to the mob as a representative of the General Executive Committee. The man replied in a frightened manner, quote, if I do, they'll hang me. Brown turned on him and said, quote, yes, if they don't, they ought to hang you. Then turning to the mob, which kept up the cry to kill, hang and burn, Brown began an impassioned plea for law and order, and by the sheer force of his earnestness riveted the attention of the crowd, but only for a few moments at a time, for they would break away from the spell of his eloquence and take up their revolutionary yells. He said, quote, Men and brothers, for God's sake, keep quiet. I implore you, in the name of humanity, in the name of the great order of the Knights of Labor, in the name of every law, both of your order and your country, restrain yourselves. Do no violence. Remember that you are our sworn brothers. Do not forget that you are knights and that you are pledged to obey the law of the order and to command your committees. Unquote. At this point, Dyer broke in. Quote, yes, why don't you talk for Jay Gould and be done with it? They shot our men down in cold blood, and you ask us to be quiet? I say, hang them, hang them, unquote. The crowd took up the word, crying, quote, burn, kill, and shoot, unquote. Brown pointed his finger at Dyer and asked him, are you a knight of labor? Dyer dodged the question and yelled on, kill the brutes. Are you a knight of labor, Jack, said Brown. No, answered Dyer, but I am with them in everything, you can bet. Quote, I knew that you were not a knight, said Brown. I know that no knight would talk as you do. Again, brothers, I appeal to you to be calm and disperse to your homes. If you will not obey our laws, remember that you are forsworn, that you are no longer knights of labor. Brothers, I beg of you to do nothing rash. Wait, oh, what will the knights of the country think of you? Oh, what will the whole world think of our great order? Don't forget how hard we work to build up our organization. Oh, and do not tear it down in ruins by one rash act. Men who incite you to strike are not true knights of labor. They are worse than the detectives of the railroads who are trying to hunt you down. Shun them. Shun them as you would a murderer. While Brown was speaking, committeeman Hayes walked excitedly up and down the platform, exclaiming in a despairing manner, quote, Oh my God, my God, I would this had not, I would this had not happened, unquote. His eyes were watery. He was almost crying. And when he addressed the mob after Brown's harangue, his emotions choked him several times, and he was obliged to pause for utterance. Hayes' speech was one of the same tenor as Brown's, as was also that of Martin O'Neill, who followed Hayes. Casper Heap, another prominent knight of labor, who had arrived in the meantime, was busy in the crowd trying upon the more excited individuals the arguments which the committeemen were urging from the platform. After a while, the temper of the mob cooled down somewhat, and they dispersed. 
not, however, wholly pacified, many of them threatening to avenge the deaths caused by the deputies. Mayor Joyce, after his encounter with the deputies on the bridge when he attempted to arrest them in their flight, went through the excited crowds to his office. He attempted to calm the men, but found it useless. The streets and sidewalks were blocked with men, women, and children who rushed in every direction at every indication of trouble. Reaching his, his office about an hour after the shooting, he at once issued a proclamation to close all saloons and warning women and minors to keep off the streets. He was seen in company with Mr. Bailey and Hayes of the Executive Committee of the Knights of Labor, who were urging him to do all in his power to calm the men. He said that he had notified the governor two weeks ago that he could do nothing and that he was utterly powerless. The aid of the state invoked. At noon today, Sheriff Ropequet sent the following dispatch to the governor. A mob of 200... invested the entrance to the Louisville and Nashville yards and stopped the employee of the road. When commanded by me and my deputies to disperse, they hooted and derided me and my posse and applied epitaphs to me and refused to disperse in the presence of the city police officers. With the force at my disposal, I cannot preserve the peace and afford protection to the railroad companies. Under these circumstances, I intend to send my posse to their homes. I hereby invoke the aid of the state militia, sufficient to aid me in the execution of laws and protection of property. I will forward a written request for militia by next mail, Sheriff Ropequet. The militia ordered out. During the shooting, Sheriff Ropequet sent the following dispatch. R.J. Oglesby, Springfield, Illinois. Mob concentrating with rifles and guns to storm the Louisville and Nashville freight house. One man killed on bridge. Danger imminent, Ropequet. To this, the governor replied, quote, Your telegram received 2 p.m., I've given orders for a militia force to report at once under command of a colonel who will be on the grounds to take charge of said forces. Several companies, possibly eight or more, will go. You will have a reliable force upon which to depend. I will instruct the colonel to report to you, and I must exact of each of you the greatest care, the greatest earnestness and discipline in your councils and cooperation with the officers in command of the force. If General Vance can leave here on the 4 o'clock p.m. train, I will send him down. Please keep the dispatch for the present to yourself. We'll communicate with you more fully in writing. Keep me advised of important events until the arrival of the military forces. R.J. Oglesby. Another striker killed. A few of the more violent strikers, after arming themselves, announced their intention of attacking the deputies on guard at the Ohio and Mississippi yards and advanced in that direction. When near the yards, they were met by several deputies and fired upon, killing, as they say, one of their number. Quiet at East St. Louis. The situation in East St. Louis, so far, as can be ascertained at midnight, has been pretty quiet. Comparatively few people were on the streets after dark, and only here and there small knots of men congregated and discussed the events of the day. Later in the evening, two companies of militia, one from Decatur and one from Nashville, Illinois, came in and were assigned to quarters. Still, later, a good deal of excitement was caused by the discovery of fire in a car loaded with hay in the Louisville and Nashville yards, but no damage was done beyond the burning of the car. About 11 o'clock, a fire broke out in the Cairo Short Line yard at the lower end of the island, and meager reports from that locality at midnight say three or four cars were burned, but no other damage was done. Two fire engines and a Babcock extinguisher were sent over there, soon after the fire in the Louisville and Nashville yards, and it was through their assistance that no more property was destroyed. Three more militia companies from Springfield and one from Carolinville came in about midnight. The Louisville and Nashville freight house is now guarded by troops, and a company will no doubt be sent to the Cairo short line. Freight cars burned. 
three Cairo Short Line and four Louisville and Nashville freight cars were burned in the railroad yards in East St. Louis tonight. It is thought they were set on fire by the strikers in revenge for today's troubles. It is now stated that the Louisville and Nashville depot was burning. Three fire engines have been sent from the city to aid in subduing the fire. Another fire. A third fire started in the Cairo Short Line premises about 1 o'clock and a report says the machine and car shops are burning but no definite information as to this has yet reached here. There is also a report that the little rolling mill, a mile or so south of the Cairo short line, is on fire, but this is not verified at 2 o'clock a.m. Another move in the strike. From certain signs and symptoms, it has been evident that during the last few days, another move in the great strike was being planned by the General Executive Board and its associates. That the key of this move is that the already much question of the coal supply is terribly certain now that the bulk of the nights employed by the Gould system are out and that there is little hope of securing operation from the engineers. A blow at the source of supply that furnished the motive power itself is suggested. The shutting off of the coal supply that caused so much consternation in St. Louis a short time ago was probably an incident of the strike rather than the result of a preconcerted ideas for an attempt was not only made to stop coal, but everything else as well from crossing the river. The reason why the embargo on coal was raised was in the shape of the following, which was generally circulated among the strikers at St. Louis. Quote, Strikers Booming Gould's Gold Company. Unquote. By shutting off the East St. Louis coal supply from all routes except the Wabash, which is protected by the United States Marshals, and stopping Teamsters from hauling coal from other yards, the strikers have driven an immense trade to the Wabash tracks, where Jay Gould's company is reaping a harvest. The executive committees then ordered the Knights not to interfere with the movement of coal, and the blockade was raised. The present plan of the strikers, which has been decided upon, aims first at the Ellsworth Mine, owned by Jay Gould's company and employs a very large number of miners at Mount Olive, Stoughton, and Warden, where the shafts are located. A great portion of these are knights of labor. To their assembly, word has been sent to make, upon application, a demand upon the company to cease to lend coal, load coal for the Missouri Pacific or any of its branches, should this demand not be conceded with the cessation of work is next on the program. Deputy Sheriff killed at the Iron Mountain Shops at Argenta, Little Rock, Arkansas, April the 9th. Between midnight and 1 o'clock this morning, Deputy Sheriff Williams, who had charge of the force of deputies guarding the St. Louis and Iron Mountain Roundhouse and machine shops in Argenta, opposite this city, was approached by F.H. Darby, a leading member of the Knights of Labor, and notified to take his force away or they would be put out. Williams replied, quote, I'll take you in now, and seizing Darby, locked him up in one of the rooms just when the outlines of 20 or 30 men were seen a short distance away and Williams ordered them out saying that he was there to guard the property and would do it if it, he fell in his tracks. Someone from the crowd replied, quote, well die then and an irregular shooting between the deputies and assailants began. Probably a hundred shots were fired and Williams was dangerously wounded by a ball in the right side and one or two other lesser wounds in other portions of the body. The mob soon after fled. It is reported that several were wounded, but if so, they were taken away by their comrades. Sheriff Worthen was telephoned and hurriedly collected a posse, went to Argenta near the south end, southern end of the Iron Mountain Railroad Bridge. Three men were halted and arrested. One, Charles Stepp, had a double-barreled gun. Another, the ticket agent, was intoxicated and abusive and 
locked up in the bridge ticket office. A strong guard was placed about the roundhouse and the shops, and in obtaining an engine and car, Williams and the four prisoners were brought to the city. Everything is quiet this morning. Williams' condition is pronounced critical. He is well known, a very popular man, and a son of Colonel B.D. Williams, formerly superintendent of the Memphis and Little Rock Railroad. Later, Deputy Sheriff Williams, who was shot this morning at the railroad roundhouse in Argenta, is resting easily tonight, but the chances are against his recovery. Darby, the leader of the strikers' mob, is secretary of the State Executive Board of the Knights of Labor. The Crooked Alderman 22 implicated in the Broadway franchise swindle. So here's some more on that Broadway franchise. New York, April the 9th. District Attorney Martin today said, quote, Ex-Alderman Charles B. Waite is still at Mr. Nichols' house. He is under the control of this office and will remain too until we are entirely through with him. The statement that has been made implicates a great many men, including all of the 22 aldermen who voted for the Broadway franchise, one outsider absolutely, and four or five others inferentially. He is adding to his statement every day. I am glad to say, in fact, I may say, that I am delighted with the progress of the case so far. Now, as to the whereabouts of the men whose names have been connected with this affair, Keenan and Maloney, I believe, are in Canada. Miller is in Florida, and I think Dempsey is there also. But I should most certainly like to know where he is. Rothman, I understand, has not been here since this investigation began, and I am told that he sailed for Germany several months ago. The Lucy, I do not believe, has run away. As to the others, I have only this to say. I believe that all these men, who did not go away originally, will be here when wanted. My honest conviction is that there are just 22 aldermen mixed up in this bribery business, and of outsiders, bribers, or middlemen, or others, almost as many more. I know of at least six outsiders who are involved, according to the evidence in our possession already. I might add that we have evidence of corruption and bribery in connection with other franchises than that of the Broadway Railroad, and for other years than 1884, a mass of it that would be sufficient to convict, I think, without the Broadway evidence at all. James Richmond has been arrested by Central Office detectives and is now located up at the headquarters on an indictment charging him with being connected with the Broadway Railroad franchise bribery. James A. Richmond is president of the Broadway Surface Railroad Company. He was arrested on a bench warrant issued from the Court of General Sessions. His arrest followed as one of the first and direct results of Alderman Waite's confession. Mr. Richmond was for a long time at the Brevoort House when Mr. Waite was owner of the hotel. And Alderman Waite's confession makes him out the chief manager of the Boodle business who put Waite up to all the tricks and jobs by means of which the franchise steal was accomplished. The fight at Laredo. Five of the rioters killed and ten wounded. The cause of the difficulty, the trouble not yet settled. Laredo, Texas, April the 9th. Two of the men wounded in yesterday's political conflict died today. The returns now show five Bota partisans killed and ten wounded. There were five funerals today. Business is practically suspended. The Belknap Rifles state troops are expected to arrived by special train tonight. The following petition, signed by many citizens, was telegraphed to Governor Ireland this morning. Quote, We understand the state troops are on their way here to preserve the peace. We most earnestly protest against the state troops being placed under the control or direction of the authorities of Laredo or Webb County, and more especially that the sheriff have no control of the men. Unquote. City Marshal Bayard gives a statement as to the cause of yesterday's outbreak. 
quote, the Botas imported men from Mexico and defeated our ticket, so they undertook to insult us by burying our party in effigy. The boys would not have it that way, and we could not restrain them when they saw the Botas, headed by the city and county officials, carrying Winchesters and marching to the plaza to bury the Harachas. Although outnumbered four to one, the Harachas gave the Botas a good thrashing. Unquote. Bayard was a candidate for re-election. He has made a good record as an officer, and his friends will contest the election. Colonel Barnard was seen at his residence in Fort McIntosh this evening and made the following statement. Quote, I expected the trouble and did not wait to be requested by either party, but marched my men down double quick, hearing the first shots. I know that the sheriff, Sanchez, was a leader of the Bota party and that City Marshal Bayard was a Harachis leader. Therefore, there was no legal authority to protect the peaceable men and women when the conflict commenced. I acted wholly on my own responsibility in the interest of humanity. There is no state law that authorizes my action. The emergency did not admit of delay, so I determined to get authority from the War Department. I never saw two parties better prepared than were the combatants when they saw our soldiers file in between them. If necessary, I could, however, justify my action that I moved against invaders from Mexico as I have knowledge of numbers of men coming over from New Laredo, Mexico, carrying arms and skiffs. Thirty-two carbines handed over to me last night are such as I never saw anywhere except in the Mexican civil, civil service. I shall keep a detachment of troops on guard at the post office, custom house, and national bank until the state forces arrive." Unquote. Colonel Bernard's action is highly commended by all parties. Today, it is admitted that the battle would have been kept up all night and hundreds killed had he not acted promptly. The colonel led the forces. As he crossed Main Street, the bullets were flying thick and fast, but he turned neither to the right or left, but marched his men to the plaza and, swinging his sword, commanded the combatants to retire. Sheriff Sanchez immediately handed over his arms and called off the botas. Lieutenant Thurston's actions during the excitement was daring in the extreme. The situation tonight is one of quietness, but the trouble is not over. Great interest manifested at Nuevo Laredo. A Nuevo Laredo, Mexico special says, This city is greatly interested in the outcome of the Laredo, Texas election troubles, inasmuch as it is understood that should the Hirachi faction come into power, they would at once take steps to form a connection with this city by building a bridge over the Rio Grande River for wagons and streetcars. The Bota Party is opposed to such improvements. They have been in power several years and have ruled the county and city with a firm hand. Until they are ousted, the bridge and streetcars will be things of the future. A prominent Mexican government official calls attention to the fact that the Laredo affray was really a more serious matter than the recent Mexican Revolution at Monterey, which was made so much of by the United States press. The News at Galveston, Galveston, Texas, April the 9th. A special to the news from Laredo, Texas, says at daylight yesterday morning, the federal troops withdrew from the city, no disturbance whatever having occurred during the night. By 8 o'clock a.m., the city had apparently assumed its usual business aspect, and the day passed quietly. Since the dispersion of the rioters on Wednesday evening by the United States troops, not an armed citizen has been seen on the streets. A bitter feeling, however, exists between the two political parties, and the least overt act would fan it into a flame. Following is a complete list of the killed. Estrevan Hernandez, Librado Guerrero, Richard Ricardo Gonzalez, and Roman Rodriguez, Mexicans, and C. Burdett and Gregorio Sanchez, Americans. Twelve wounded men were found yesterday, at least four of whom are thought to be mortally injured. 
murdered his child to save it from maltreatment. Flint, Michigan, April the 9th. Little Lulu Wilson died last Sunday, and her father was suspected of the crime. He has confessed, and the particulars were made public today. The child's mother maltreated her horribly, and the father poured creosote down the child's throat, stating that he wanted to save it from further ill treatment. This next article is not about a crime, per se, but it is about the insane asylum. Plans examined by the building commissioners. McDonald Brothers of Louisville selected as architects a tour of inspection. The building commissioners of the Lunatic Asylum of Western Tennessee to be built at Bolivar, Tennessee, were in session all day Thursday until midnight and all day yesterday until 5 o'clock p.m. They were present Austin Miller of Bolivar, Chairman A.W. Brockway of Brownsville, Secretary J.R. Godwin of Memphis, and Mr. J.B. Jones, Medical Superintendent. The principal business considered at the meeting was the examination of plans and specifications submitted by various architects and building, builders anxious to secure the position of architect of the projected building. Plans and specifications have been filed by the following named gentlemen, and it lists quite a lot of gentlemen here. After a careful and laborious, exhaustive examination of all the plans submitted, a vote was taken, and the plans filed by McDonald Brothers of Louisville were selected as best meeting the views of the commissioners, and that firm was elected as the architects under whose supervision the new asylum is to be constructed. The building planned by McDonald Brothers would consist of a central building which will contain all the offices and apartments required for officers and attendants, except in superintendent, and two wings for the patients, also a rear building in which the kitchen, laundry, bakery, and amusement hall will be placed, and in the rear of them, the boiler house and engine room. Stretching from the center building in either direction will be the wings for male and female patients, respectively. Each wing is to consist of two buildings containing three wards each, with the basement underneath and an attic above. These buildings to be separated from each other and from the center building by fireproof towers containing the stairs and the stacks with the exhaustion of vidated air. Joined to the center building and stretching to the rear will be the accommodations for the necessary shops, kitchen, laundry, and bakery. This connection will also be fireproof and contain a fireproof stair. The building will be a brick, three stories in height, with a basement underneath and an attic above. The building will be warmed throughout by steam except the first floor, where open fireplaces will be used. The building will easily accommodate 300 patients with a separate room for each patient. The frontage of the building will occupy 370 feet and is estimated that the brickwork alone will cost $55,000. The building will be lighted throughout with electricity and a light will be provided for each patient's room. The plan submitted will be placed before Governor Bate for his approval and will be subject to such modifications as may from time to time become manifestly necessary. One of the firm of the McDonald Brothers will, however, supervise the work and will be consulted on any suggested changes. The firm who were elected as architects, are known as competent architects and builders and have recently built a lunatic asylum in Marion, Virginia, which is said to be a model of its kind. The commissioners leave next week on a tour of inspection of newly erected asylums with a view to familiarizing themselves with such improvements that have been adopted elsewhere. Mr. John R. Godwin, our popular townsman and president of the Mercantile Bank, who is a member of the commission, will accompany the commissioners and give them the benefit of his trained business capacity and general adaptability to new surroundings. The next section of the paper is titled City News. A couple of chicken thieves were captured at an early hour yesterday morning by the police. It is likely that some light will be thrown on the recent Bennett tragedy in the suit soon to come up before Justice Coleman. A large number of witnesses have been summoned. Dr. George K. Duncan, superintendent and physician of the county almshouse, makes the following report for the quarter. Remaining from previous quarter, 205, Sane admitted, 118 insane admitted, 8, 
Sane Dismissed, 97. Insane Dismissed, 11. Sane Died, 24. Insane Died, 3. Remaining, 196. Average per day, 212. Of these remaining, 75 are insane. The Greenlaw family out on Poplar Street Boulevard had a high old time yesterday. Greenlaw, a colored man and his wife, had been in the habit of jawing each other every day for weeks, and yesterday there was a fight in which the entire family joined. Brick bats and clubs were extensively used. The dispute will be adjudicated before Justice Coleman today. At a called meeting of the Board of Managers of the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals held yesterday, it was resolved that this society is in favor of prosecuting parties engaged in pigeon shooting for sport, it being unlawful and cruel, and that the action of this society be published in the morning papers to give warning to offenders that they will be prosecuted as the law provides. President Hayden is in need of rest. He insists in taking upon himself all the little details of the government, and now he finds himself called upon to answer questions and attend to hundreds of little things which could be handled by the policemen or garbage cart drivers. The strain is constant and intense, and in spite of the president's geniality, is rapidly making him an old man. He should go to the seashore for two or three months. And that concludes the crime news for the 10th of April, 1886 for the Memphis Appeal. Please join me again for a year of crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee. <laughs>